This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Persty, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Olivia Milburn, who is Professor of Chinese Literature at Seoul National University and soon to be Professor in the School of Chinese at Hong Kong University. Uh, so first of all, hi, Olivia, and congratulations on a new position. Thank you very much. And um, so today we'll be talking about uh, your new book, uh, The Empress in the Pepper Chamber, Zhao Feiyan in History and Fiction. But before we delve into the book, I was wondering if you could um, give us a brief um, uh, potted biography of your life and career so far leading up to this book. Okay, so um, I got interested in studying Chinese when I was still at school. and. That was largely due to um, reading the English language translation of um, Story of the Stone, Hong Lo Mang. And then I applied to study Chinese at Oxford. And at that stage, I got interested in classical Chinese and particularly really early stuff. So I did my MA at Cambridge and PhD at University of London. And then I taught at SOAS University of London for five years before moving on to my current job in South Korea um, at Seoul National University. And my research has mostly been related to um, Wu and Yue, the Eastern states, non-Chinese states, during the spring and autumn period. However, in addition to that, recently I have become interested in prose fiction and the history of prose fiction in China. And I got into this actually because the earliest surviving novel written in the Chinese language is a um, historical novel from the Han Dynasty about the history of Wu and Yue. So the two topics that, that I researched kind of dovetailed here. Um, but 
then kind of by accident, I was reading a whole bunch of prose fiction accounts from the medieval period. And that was when I came across Zhao Fei and Wai Juan, which is translated as part of this book. Wow, uh, that that is a that's a fascinating way of coming from something quite early to then going into literature and fiction, and it's one of those accidents of the sources that we have to work with, kind of stories. Um, yes, exactly. I mean, it it was it was purely accidental that, that I happened to come across this particular text, and then get interested in the idea of translating it and studying it further. Yes, and I mean this—the text uh, that you deal with and concentrate with in this book is is truly fascinating. I'll uh, give a brief introduction for our listeners here. So Zhao Feiyan, uh, who is alive from forty-five to one BCE, was the second empress appointed by Emperor Cheng of the Han Dynasty, one of the last emperors of the Western Han period before the uh, Wangmang Interregnum. Zhao Feiyan was born into slavery and was trained in the performing arts, which was a kind of background that wasn't very appropriate to be appointed to an empress. And so her, her situation was incredibly controversial at the time. And she was persecuted uh, in her life and eventually forced to commit suicide. After her death, her reputation was piled piled onto a already problematic representation were accusations of vicious scheming and the murder of other consorts and their offspring, as well as relentless promiscuity and extravagant shopping. So we can see all of these kind of tropes of maligned women in history kind of coming out in the legacy of Zhao Feiyan. So this book is the first book-length study of Zhao Feiyan and her literary legacy. And it includes, uh, as Olivia mentioned, a complete translation of the scandalous tale of Zhao Feiyan or Zhao Feiyan Waijuan, which is a Tang Dynasty erotic novella that describes in great detail the decadent lifestyle she supposedly enjoyed and as uh, and other imperial favourites enjoyed in the harem of the Han Dynasty Emperor Cheng. Coming up in this uh, in this book, there it deals with a lot of themes, or we can see this from discussing sexual matters like fetishism and obsession uh, to jealousy, incompatibility, marriage, and so on. And uh, yeah, this was a really fascinating document to read in translation, but also your treatment of it and your exploration of it, both from the historical documentation of all of the different versions and editions and retellings of this tale, uh, but also the kind of the themes that you draw out and discuss. I, I really, really enjoyed. And, well, um, yes, I mean, so the this is an enormously influential text. That was one of the reasons for specifically wanting to study this. Um, this is not just influential on Chinese literature. It is more widely influential on East Asian literature. And you can see the impact that it has in fiction from Japan, Korea, and so on. Yes, yes. And um, I'd like to start out with a, an easy question uh, for our listeners, uh, which is uh, the title of this book, The Empress in the Pepper Chambers. I was wondering if you could explain very briefly, uh, what do we mean by the pepper chamber? And also, I was thinking about like, 
also the study of empresses. I, I've not come across many books that deal with specifically with the lives of a particular empress. I mean, famously, we go to Emperor Wu, the only female emperor in the Tang Dynasty, gets a lot of um, writing and attention. But looking at empresses on the other side of the, the court, um, what did you learn from studying an empress and writing about an empress? Yes, that, that's a fabulous question to start with. So, um, yeah, the, the title of this book, Empress in the Pepper Chamber, the Pepper Chamber is the official name for the residence of the empress. So um, a lot of women lived in the imperial harem and some of them are there to work and some of them are wives and consorts of the emperor and high status women. But the empress is uniquely privileged by being given a special central palace to live in. And the walls of the palace were perfumed with Sichuan pepper, crushed into the plaster, and that then symbolised um, the position of the empress. And since Sichuan pepper was an emblem of fertility, then the use of the pepper plaster for the empress's residence, um, that symbolises her role in ensuring fertility for the emperor, um, and the imperial family and the dynasty as a whole. So it was a prerogative of the empress to live in this kind of um, special residence. And other people were not allowed to have this. They could use other spices and perfumes for their houses, but not the Sichuan pepper. And yeah, you're quite right. There aren't that many people who have uh, specifically studied empresses and the role of the empress. And that's a really, really serious problem for understanding the political and historical significance of empresses in particular dynasties. And it's not actually just the empress that we don't really understand. Uh, there are also the roles played by palace women are often really misunderstood. And the roles played by um, senior consorts as well, that there's a lot of research that needs to be done to clarify what is going on there. Uh, well, precisely, yeah. I, uh, one of the reasons I I was really drawn to this book and was fascinated by the topic is that my only schooling, if you can call it that, in the subject of palace women are Chinese costume period dramas like Zhong Huan Zhuan or Yan Shi Gong Lue, which I imagine, which are all based in the Qing Dynasty, and I imagine take a lot of liberties. Uh, you do mention TV adaptations very briefly in your book as well, and how often the focus of these is on the sumptuousness of the surroundings and um, the kind of uh, the interactions between the women that I think um, maybe some people who do history might kind of marginalize or consider to be frivolous. But uh, I think you really bring out the uh, the point in here that like a lot of these details about 
um, high culture, about this really refined material culture and about emotions are actually really, really significant in understanding uh, these court politics. Yes, I mean, there, there's the whole court politics side that has really been neglected. Certainly, there's a lot of information about material culture in some of these sources that has really not been properly researched. And that looks at a whole different way of thinking about the palace and the role of women in the palace, because they are supposed to be trendsetters. I mean, it's part of the job description that you as an empress, you as a senior palace women, are supposed to be making friends and influencing people through giving lavish gifts. And you are also definitely supposed to be setting trends and developing new fashions, and that's part of your job. And it was believed that this adds to the luster of the dynasty as a whole. Right, yes. Um, and uh, But incidentally, this, uh, this, this source that you work with, it doesn't just belong in a kind of a, a field of historical documentation. It is, it is a literary genre. And you stress throughout this book, um, the idea of a literary genre that you call silk pillow literature. I was wondering if you could expand uh, a bit on um, what is silk pillow literature and how does it differ from the more kind of commonly understood paradigms of uh, political history or erotica or these kind of genres? Yes. So I was... I came into reading these kinds of things essentially purely by accident. So I was reading books which contain pre-Ming and Qing dynasty prose fiction out, out of pure interest because it seemed to me that a lot of histories of Chinese fiction writing are really inadequate because you get a few random early works mentioned and then history of fiction writing basically jumps straight to the four great novels of the Ming dynasty and there is absolutely no serious discussion about how do we get from these the handful of really really early things in the Han dynasty early long prose li fiction literature to the massive novels of the Ming and Qing. Where does the plotting and where do people learn how to do the plotting, the characterization, and so on? And so I was looking at um, medieval prose fiction in particular. And that was when I noticed that an awful lot of these books specifically deal with palace women. And silk pillow literature, I ended up having to kind of separate this out as a whole genre all by itself, because it is different from um, a lot of prose fiction in that a lot of these things are quite long. And they have historical characters. Um, the, the men and women that appear in these novels are based on genuine historical individuals. 
and often the text is presented as as if it were a genuine historical source. So you get some kind of introduction or um, piece at the end talking about how, in spite of this being massively unlikely and, you know, kind of obviously fictional, you know, this is this is all totally true and the author had privileged access to information somehow or other or was smuggled into the palace or somebody was smuggled out of the palace in order to tell him this stuff. And then what you... You know, it's presented as eyewitness material, but you have the very strong emphasis on the female characters and because imperial palace, um, and you have a lot of careful characterization and specifically the emphasis on relationships and personal problems and sexual relationships and difficulties within sex. So it's not historical because these things are definitely fictional. It's not pornographic because you don't need all the historical information and you certainly don't need all of the discussions of sexual problems and relationship difficulties in something that's purely pornographic. And it's this kind of liminal genre of literature that straddles history and fiction um, and pornographic literature and does not fit into either of these categories very well. Yeah, it's it's difficult to fit it straightforwardly into fiction because quite often there is a really, really close relationship with history. And some of these texts are really, really strongly historical and make a lot of emphasis on the historical verisimilitude that's going on here. So it's it's a genre that kind of awkwardly straddles others and needs to be separated out because otherwise we can't study this properly. Right, yeah. And I, and I have kind of two questions branching out from that. The first one, um, I was wondering, uh, so these are sort of the pre-Ming or even during the Ming, like a lot of this kind of, uh, this, so-called fictional writing or a heavily kind of uh, immersed in historical information or detail sort of fictional writing where does that fit um in the pre-modern imperial china in this idea of high culture and low culture is part of the neglect that we see for earlier dynasties of both transmission and survival to do with how it is viewed um and how these writings are viewed generally in terms of high and low culture yes um so these novels, the um, short stories in some cases through to really long novels in, in others, yeah, they, they it's kind of awkward. They are high culture in the sense that they are written in the literary language. Um, they are written in literary Chinese and often with really high literary value and um, a lot of 
a lot of expressions in common use in Chinese right up to the present day. If you track them down, they actually come from these these writings. Um, they are very classical, and the language can be extremely beautiful. But on the other hand, they do get banned. The very pornographic, very heavily erotic content can in some cases end up with these things being being made illegal. The other issue is that sometimes they are regarded as critical of contemporary emperors, and then they get banned because of that. Right. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that comes uh, through in your sort of analysis of this Tang Dynasty retelling of a Han Dynasty um, story is is very much you, you do look at whether it is talking about uh, court politics uh, within uh, its era in the Tang Dynasty. My other question that branched out from your earlier comments on Silk Pillow literature was this uh, division between history and fiction. I mean, history and fiction appear in the title of this very book, Side by Side. And it does feel like the, so I I should tell listeners, so there is a substantial part of this book goes into the documentary uh, analysis of this Tang Dynasty um, novel and tries to trace what historical documents the writers of this were using with which to create this novel. But you found it wasn't very clean. It wasn't that they were drawing on necessarily a singular tradition of, of historical information about Zhao Feiyan. Now I was wondering, when we come across this, um, it's blurring of history and fiction, do you find that necessarily what we have that is historically written about Zhao Feiyan is particularly reliable? And then what, what does fiction tell us that maybe history is unable to tell us? Yes, so Zhao Feiyan, of course, this she is really so controversial. And you have a very pejorative historical tradition that goes back to the official history of the Han Dynasty that talks about all of the people that she's supposed to have killed. And that's one strand of vilification. And then you have the other strand of vilification, which is found in medieval texts, historical and not so historical, which is talking about her as very sexually promiscuous and very extravagant. And she's spending all of this money, um, wasting taxpayers' money on, on all of these luxuries while having lots and lots of affairs with other men. And these two traditions don't really fit together very well. Um, I'm not sure what is happening here. Uh, you can just say that there are there are two kind of separate traditions, the official dynastic history and the more uh, literary tradition. And the scandalous tale of Zhao Feiyan is part of the literary tradition. Um, it is not talking about her going around killing people. However, whether there is a word of truth in the history of the Han Dynasty, I really wouldn't like to say because it's written by people who absolutely hated her. 
the the author of History of the Han Dynasty, the main author, Ban Gu, um, his great aunt was tortured, supposedly, by Zhao Feiyan. And certainly the Ban family believed that Zhao Feiyan prevented their great aunt from becoming um, empress. So they really don't like her. And yeah, but like I say, whether whether there is a word of truth in in the official history of the Han Dynasty, who knows? Because it is written by personal enemies of Zhao Feiyan. So, yeah, you cannot tell. Yeah, but uh, but but also to be clear, the um the scandalous tale isn't wholly positive about Zhao Feiyan as well. I mean, yeah, so the so Bangles and the, the, the Ban family sort of histories of her are very, very, very negative. But um, I, I really found fascinating that you picked up on this, um, the Jiangdu connection um, with Zhao Feiyan as, uh, that we see in the scandalous tale. I was wondering if you could talk a little about this and how that kind of twists the story in these subtle ways. Yes. Um, so according to the official history of the Han Dynasty, the Han Shu, the um, brothers of Emperor Wu of the Han Dynasty were very, very problematic individuals. And it is quite common to, to see accusations of incest and torture and murder and bestiality and all kinds of horrible things going on with these people and a number of the these um, imperial princes end up being stripped of their titles and reduced to status of commoner or indeed even executed because of the dreadful things that they get up to. And according to the scandalous tale of Zhao Feiyan, she is an illegitimate granddaughter of one of these terrible, terrible, terrible Han Dynasty imperial princes, um, who later on has the title of King of Jiangdu. So there is some crossover certainly there, because clearly the author of The Scandalous Tale, whoever that is in the Tang Dynasty, is aware that the official dis- the official history of the Han Dynasty talks about the dreadful behaviour of these people, and therefore you're kind of set up to expect that the granddaughter is going to be totally immoral and and do disgusting things. Um, but she, yeah, the the. There is a connection, but there is no connection with the portrayal of Zhao Feiyan between the fictional account and the official dynastic history. You really wouldn't know that it's talking about the same person looking at the two different accounts because the official history of the dynasty really does specifically emphasise the murders and and the unsatisfactory nature of Empress Zhao Feiyan because she was born a slave. And 
that's not an acceptable origin for Han Dynasty Empress. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like what we see in the historical is one that's, um, yeah, quite politically motivated by the uh, by the status of um, uh, of Zhao Feiyan and her origins. However, in the um, in the literary work that you study here, the scandalous tale of Zhao Feiyan, and then numerous subsequent retellings uh, and re-envisionings of the story over several dynasties following the Tang, we kind of see quite a diversity in the presentations and how this story is reworked and uh, re-understood. Um, and this kind of uh, gets to um, another question I wanted to ask, which is that um, you emphasize in this book that, I mean, this this, this is a story not only of one woman, primarily about two women, uh, Zhao Feiyan and her younger sister. Uh, however, this literature was predominantly written by and for men. And you do highlight this, that then obviously we bring in discussions of the influence of the male gaze, uh, both in uh, the writing and the audience and readership of this. But you kind of go a bit beyond this and you kind of look at the sort of nuances of that to do with this particular story. And I was wondering if you could uh, discuss that. Yes, um, it is certainly true that most silk pillow writings, if we can track down an author and definitely assign authorship, um, these are written by men and they do seem to be specifically written for a male audience and we don't really see accounts of women reading these these things until Qing Dynasty. Whether that's realistic or not, um, I imagine women in earlier dynasties did read this kind of stuff, but we just simply don't have their opinions on this kind of literature. So beginning in about 18th century, it seems that Qing dynasty women were increasingly happy to talk about these kinds of subjects. So they are starting to write about reading erotic fiction and thinking about erotic fiction. And that's kind of interesting. But they tend to take a very negative view. And this is all tied up with perspectives on on, on writing and women's writings in that up until, up until late Qing dynasty, 18th, 19th century, um, it was really seen as problematic for women to express any kind of opinion about such a controversial woman as, as Zhao Feiyan was. So there's definitely a significant shift in attitudes. That means in the Qing dynasty, um, women do suddenly start writing about her and do suddenly start having an opinion about the scandalous tale of Zhao Feiyan. But they, they are very careful still to say, I don't like it. I do not, I do not admire this woman. This is a terrible person, you know. She did awful things, you know, either she's murdering people or she's off having sex with other men. This this is bad. 
Um, but it's it's a real revolution that they write about her at all. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new brainy chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, you mentioned also that they're obviously writing for the expectations of women writers in their time as well, but they, they don't want to condone these um <laughs> these problematic female figures of the past um so but in the in the absolutely centuries where we predominantly see men writing about this do we see um uh it, do, do we find a, a homogenous kind of male voice in the treatment of Jao Feiyan or do we see um sort of diversity in even areas where these male writers are giving a surprising amount of female agency uh, and understanding of uh, these women in the patriarchy, the patriarchal system. Understanding of patriarchy, maybe not, but certainly there's quite considerable diversity of voice. Um, Yeah, you might have thought, or it would be nice if there was more discussion of her position as a slave, because that's clearly quite crucial. So given that she's a slave, her entire family was enslaved. It was only because the emperor fell in love with her and wanted to make her his empress that her family was freed and um, given titles and honours and so on. How much choice does somebody like that actually have? And that that aspect people are really not comfortable with engaging in. This is something that is problematic throughout Chinese history, that you have these femme fatale characters who, when you look into it, they are slaves. How much choice do they realistically have in what happens to them? So um, Zhao Feiyan, she becomes an empress, but she still has this terrible burden of being a former slave hanging round her neck. And so you get male authors, um, male poets, who are comfortable with writing about her quite positively, writing about her as sexy or and desirable, and, and, and that's fine, but she's a slave. And that's really disturbing, that there is no kind of recognition of just how problematic that actually is. Right, yeah, it's almost as if she's treated with the expectation, once becoming empress, then she is treated with all the expectations of, of aristocratic women and expected to have the same motivations as aristocratic women uh, as well. Yes, and you can compare her with the earlier slave empress, Wade Um, who 
is portrayed much, much, much more positively in Chinese history and Chinese literature. But their weights of food had a lot of children. And the last five emperors of the Western Han Dynasty are all descended from her. So, yes, she's a slave. And like Zhao Feiyan, she was specifically a slave entertainer. And the difference between the two of them is Wei Zifu has children and Zhao Feiyan doesn't. So Zhao Feiyan does not have anybody who is invested in her reputation and she does not have people to prune the archives for her and make sure that they say the right kind of thing. And when she is murdered, I mean forced to commit suicide, then her enemies take control of the court and they can make absolutely sure that what is the official line is is very, very negative, very, very pejorative. Right. Yeah, but even during her lifetime, her situation was also very precarious because her position solely relied on the continuing favour of the empress. She could, uh, uh, sorry, favour of the emperor. And she had already sort of been part of no, no, sorry. Um, I was going to say she was part of a removal with the first empress, but that wasn't true. That that relationship was already over when she came into the picture. Am I correct? Yes, yes, exactly. So um, Emperor Chung's first wife, Empress Xu, that marriage failed because of Emperor Chung's mother and her interference and the the interference of Emperor Chung's maternal relatives. They absolutely hated Empress Xu. So the poor woman was really, really um, vilified to her husband and she found it impossible to defend herself. And then she was demoted and it's after the collapse of his first marriage that Emperor Chung meets Zhao Feiyan And by that stage, he's realised that his mother, his uncles were responsible for what happened with his first marriage. And yeah, he's he's very unhappy with, with that. And he was absolutely determined that his mother and her relatives were not going to be allowed to interfere with his second marriage, which is why he picks somebody that he chooses himself, um, that is completely outside any court structure, that is not involved in any kind of um, interaction with with the Wang family, and, yeah, completely separate. Somebody that he can feel comfortable with, I guess. And, yeah, then Empress Xu... See, during when Zhao Feiyan was already appointed, Empress Xu seems to have come slightly back into favour, and at that stage, her mother-in-law has her murdered. Oh, yeah. The, the, <laughs> these these are not relaxing people, right? Um, no. <laughs> the the uh, the dreadful way that they kill each other, uh, yeah, is quite terrible. 
So another interest, uh, another key relationship in um, in the Zhao Feiyan story is uh, that of her relationship with her sister. I was surprised that, I mean, Zhao Feiyan was obviously the empress. So this is why we, the Waijuan, the scandalous tale, was named after her. But her empress, uh, the, her sister is not really a supporting role. She's also a key figure in a lot that, that goes on. I was wondering in reading... Um, I mean, we talk uh, we talk a lot about now the uh, the whole idea of the Bechdel test and like uh, where you have um, writings uh, and literature where where women are talking to each other and not necessarily only talking about men and you know there's kind of solidarity between uh, female uh, female characters and now this has also been expanded to talk about other minorities that are depicted in literature um, or marginalized uh, kind of figures. So I'd be very interested where through working with this. Uh, how did you feel about the presentation of this uh, relationship between these two women, these two sisters who were both at the court and both dependent on their status on keeping and sustaining fa- the, the emperor's favour? Yes, this is very interesting and very striking in the scandalous tale of Zhao Feiyan. So she and her sister, Empress and Lady of Brilliant Deportment, Zhao Herder. Um, her sister's basically a quasi-empress, and that is historically accurate. So in order to warn off his mother and his mother's family from causing trouble, Emperor Chang doesn't just have the empress in place. He also has the next most senior palace woman is Zhao Feiyan's younger sister. And that means that if his mother succeeds in ousting his wife, all that's going to happen is that his wife's younger sister takes over as the most senior palace woman. It's like, don't bother with this. So that that aspect is certainly historically accurate. Um, whether the relationship between the sisters as portrayed in A Scandalous Tale has any basis in fact we just don't know Um, but it is interesting that they are kind of competitive and also kind of mutually mutually supporting and Also, one of the things that's really, really striking is actually in the language, because when either of these women talk to the emperor, they speak in a very refined way. But when these women are talking among themselves or with other women in the rear palace in in the Han Dynasty, they actually speak in a really vulgar way. It's like they are letting their hair down and being themselves when the emperor is not present. That was essentially impossible to convey in translation, but it is very much part of the the Chinese text that you have this difference in manner of speaking between talking to the emperor, who is the only male character, versus chatting among themselves when they are relaxed and the emperor is not there. Right. Yeah. And um, 
Well, uh, there, there is another male character, though, am I correct? And this kind of comes into another topic I wanted to chat about, which was the... Um, I really loved... Uh, later, in, uh, later in the book, you have this... I, what I think is a wonderful kind of exploration of the, the concept of jealousy as it kind of plays out in um, gendered expectations throughout Chinese history. And you sort of present us with uh, almost like a chronology... Of, of the way that expectations of jealousy change from the classical period that we see in the Book of Odes through the Han, the Age of Disunion, and into the Tang, and how this idea of whether uh, jealousy was something that one is responsible for having in the first place, for controlling uh, um, uh, all of these aspects, and whether it, it's something that is intrinsic to men or women is really really fascinating you 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 play this out then by by looking at the story of Zhao Feiyan uh and and her sister in the this Tang Dynasty text um I was wondering if you uh if you could talk about um what you discovered with this um with this exploration of jealousy and what it kind of says about female agency or expectations of female agency in the text yes so um the fact is that emotions have not been very much studied, and particularly not negative emotions. So uh, that's that's true um, in Chinese context. It's also true in Western research. There is not that much available to, to understand the history of emotion and the way that different emotions are portrayed in literature and the way that they are discussed. So when I was researching this book, I noticed that there was a really, really serious problem because you have one word for jealousy, which is do, and that's used in the Han Dynasty sources and it's used also in medieval era texts, but they're actually talking about something that's quite different because it was very clear that, first of all, jealousy was being regarded as an emotion only of women. So if men are behaving or acting in a jealous way, that would not be called du. Um, there, there is no vocabulary in Chinese for male jealousy in, in early China in medieval China. It was just seen as absolutely unthinkable that men were jealous. Men might be angry or upset or mad or, or something else, but they cannot be jealous. So then also, when you're looking at the early material, um, pre-imperial and Han dynasty, they talk about jealousy as binary. So you can be jealous or you can be not jealous as a woman. And being not jealous is very much praised. And then you get to the medieval period um, and there's, there's a really, really sudden switch, apparently, in, in thinking about jealousy. And you start seeing jealousy being discussed as a spectrum. All women are jealous. It's just a question of degree. Are they mildly jealous? Can they, can they control themselves? Or are they super jealous and absolutely unable to control themselves? So 
it's not at all clear why you have this change in thinking about emotion, but it is really, really strongly present in our sources. And the changeover comes somewhere in the time of the collapse of the Han Dynasty. Um, So third century CE, early third century CE. And what exactly is going on here is, is hard to say, but it's it's kind of crucial to realize that this is what is happening because you have exactly the same word being used but people mean something actually significantly different right yes and and the expectation of uh managing jealousy on the part of women or the issue of it if correct me if i'm wrong is this idea especially in the imperial court um where you have multiple women who are all kind of tasked with siring male offspring for the emperor, and they kind of just have to live with each other and get on with it and not not get jealous of the fact that they are all women who are only allowed to have one romantic and sexual partner, where but they're living with a man who has multiple, as many as he needs or wants. Yes, yes, and, and that is exactly the issue that... Um, jealousy would potentially really limit the number of children that a man could have. If his wife is jealous and will not allow him to have concubines and junior consorts and whatever, that is seriously problematic as far as the patriarchal regime is concerned. And it is very noticeable that the medieval era, you actually have empresses who insist that their husbands observe monogamy. Under no circumstances whatsoever are they going to accept sharing. And they can make that stick. Um, It's really, really impressive. These women absolutely refuse to accept the idea of sexually sharing their spouse with other women. So what's interesting about the scandalous tale in light of that is that the object of jealousy between, or the the stimulus, if you will, for jealousy uh, between the two sisters, Zhao Feiyan and Zhao Hede, is not the emperor. Am I correct? It was actually... Yes. A... Yes, they are both having an affair with another man. The same other man. Yes, and I just thought like that that dynamic was kind of fascinating that this was in the tale as well. So it wasn't a tale of them necessarily, they were competing for the emperor's interest, but the emotion was for something that they thought was theirs and theirs alone. It was yes, illicit. yes, absolutely. That uh, they, well, uh, the, how the empress explains this, the, the text doesn't go into, but the, according to the scandalous tale, um, when the empress and her sister are quarrelling because they're sharing the same lover um, and the emperor finds out about it, then they just tell him that they're quarrelling about him. Um, and, and then he's really flattered and, and happy about that. He likes the idea that, that, that his wives are quarrelling over him. Right, yeah. I thought that was just a fascinating touch to this uh, to to this particular story as well. So, I 
now I wanted to move on to ask a question uh, just generally about the act of translation as scholarship. And because uh, I know you've you've translated uh, other works before um, uh, you uh, in your book, uh, Urbanization in Early Medieval China, you you translated a gazetteer for uh, Suzhou. And, and here again, you present us with a translation with an in-depth study. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about your experience of uh, translation as scholarship and what do you think it brings to scholarship? Well, um, in this case, the scandalous tale of Zhao Feiyan, it seemed to me that one of the problems here is that essentially this isn't just part of Chinese literary history. This is part of East Asian literary history and it's part of the world novel writing tradition. And I really wanted this to be available to as many people as possible to read it. Therefore, it was crucial both to have the original Chinese text, which is not necessarily going to be easy for people to get hold of, and also to have a complete translation of everything so that people who cannot read Chinese can still have access to this really, really significant novel. And yes, I I wanted to translate everything. And there have been a number of translations of Zhao Feiyan, Waiduan already um, into various European languages, but they are all expurgated. So they've taken out the uh, sexually explicit material and they have taken out some of the stuff about luxury material culture. And once you start taking those things out, then you've really seriously distorted the nature of the book because this is about sex and sexual problems and difficult marital relationships because the marriage between Empress Zhao Feiyan and Emperor Chang breaks down pretty quickly and that's very, very distressing for the Empress and she actually tries to kill herself. And if you don't have the discussion of sexual boredom that is the problem in this marriage, then you are really, really seriously distorting the text. And the shopping, uh, I mean, it is really a sex and shopping novel. So you need you need the, the luxury goods. They're important as well. And they're, they're also there to be shocking to the readership. Readers are meant to look at these eye-wateringly expensive, fancy descriptions of presents that the Zhao um, Hede gives to her older sister and the the incredibly expensive luxury um, housing that they live in and, yeah, the, the, the fancy clothes they wear and the jewellery and so on. And, you know... You're meant to be taking notes. You, you know, you the reader are 
are supposed to be kind of horrified and titillated at reading about just how much money these people are spending. And and again, that, that kind of ties back into the whole thing that Zhao Feiyan and her younger sister were slaves. And through their beauty and sexual wiles, they have been raised to the height of power and, and have really, really massive spending ability, and they use it to the full. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was I was titillated or scandalized or made curious. What was it? There was one point where she was eating with chopsticks made from rhinoceros horn, which apparently had the power to detect poison. I don't know if that is uh, if that has been now substantiated that that is a property of rhinoceros horn. But uh, yeah, I was yeah, I was fascinated by some of these objects. And also, as you point out in the book, it is precisely some of these luxury goods, which kind of serve as a smoking gun for uh, this text being uh, a fictitious or apocryphal one and not actually from the Han Dynasty, because we have objects that don't arrive in China until the Tang Dynasty. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, some of the things are demonstrably wrong. Some some of the substances mentioned and some of the um, the shapes and and whatever these are not things that exist in the Han Dynasty. Therefore, this is definitely a Tang Dynasty text. Um, that's the, the clues are, are there. Right. Well. Um... Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, Olivia. Thank you very much um, for giving such wonderful and detailed answers. Um, so as a final question, I was wondering, uh, what are you working on now and what's what's coming up in the future? Well, I actually have a bunch of different projects. So um, I have a five-volume translation series um coming out with University of California Press, which is a full translation of Feng Menglong's classic Ming Dynasty historical novel, Xin Jie Guozhi, Kingdoms in Peril. So there's going to be a one-volume abridged edition and then a four-volume complete translation of the whole 108-chapter novel. And in addition to that, I am working on a new volume which is looking at different silk pillow writings. So two Ming dynasty texts which are talking about Kitan Liao dynasty and Mongol Yuan dynasty palace women and yeah, looking at their portrayal in Ming dynasty silk pillow fiction right i should also add just from uh just from my perspective uh as, as a researcher myself that um the uh the liao dynasty um based uh ming dynasty text that you talk about is a is a great lesson for myself in how siloed uh one can be as a scholar and that i was working on a liao dynasty and always saw this as a liao source and my lack of familiarity with ming dynasty literature meant that obviously I was never looking for any of the signs that it was actually a Ming Dynasty piece of literature that claimed to be from the Liao Dynasty. So it is a lesson in a wider reading, for sure. But uh, anyway, thank you 
so much uh, for taking your time to talk with us today, Olivia. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs>